Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Well, welcome to this special episode of Democracy Sausage, where we ask if we can and how we might create a future without poverty. Coming to you from the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny, and I'm speaking to you from the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people. And I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians whose land this is and pay my respects to the elders past and present. And I'm joined by an audience from around the world for this live event. So welcome to you all. In 2015, global leaders agreed to the Sustainable Development Goals, the first of which is to end poverty in all its forms everywhere by 2030. Sustainable Development Goal number one aims to eradicate extreme poverty around the world to reduce by at least half the proportion of men, women and children of all ages living in poverty in all its dimensions and to expand social protection systems. Five years ago, no one imagined we would be facing a global pandemic that is plunging millions of people into poverty and making the lives of the poor so much more difficult. So it is possible, or is it possible, still possible to achieve this global goal? Is there the political commitment to do so? And how might we end poverty in all its forms? To discuss these issues, I have with me in New York, Oxford and Canberra, Philip Alston, Sabina Elkir and Sharon Bessel. Philip Alston is John Norton Pomeroy Professor Professor of Law at New York University. He was a UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights from June 2014 to April 2020. In 2014, he was a member of the Security Council-established Commission Inquiry of the Central African Republic. He previously served as a Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Executions, 2004 to 2010, as well as Chairperson of the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, 1991 to 98. During the drafting of the Convention of the Rights of the Child, he was UNICEF's legal advisor. Sabina Alkir directs the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative. She is the Associate Professor of Development Studies in the Oxford Department of International Development at the University of Oxford. Her research interests include multidimensional poverty measurement and analysis, welfare economics, the capability approach, the measurement of freedoms and human development. And Sharon Bessel is Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy, where she is Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Her research focuses on social policy, social justice and the human rights of children and the gendered and generational dimensions of poverty. She has been involved in research on multidimensional poverty at the Australian National University since 2008 In 2019, Sharon was named one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence for that year. So welcome to that panel. Welcome to you all. It's great to see you, and I'm sure we have a a great discussion ahead of us. Philip, if we could begin with you, as you ended your term as UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, you delivered a report to the Human Rights Council where you described the parlous state of poverty eradication and criticised the mainstream narrative that poverty is nearing eradication. 
what is wrong with the current approaches to poverty eradication and with that narrative that uh, we see surrounding it? It's a complex uh, set of issues, which, of course, is one of the challenges that we always face when dealing with poverty, that very quickly uh, everything gets complicated and one loses the main threads and certainly loses uh, the audience that is probably the most important, that is not the audience of our academic peers. Um, The report that I uh, produced makes several arguments. The main one, in a way, is, is a negative one, and that is simply to say that the reliance on the World Bank's international poverty line Uh, which was originally called a dollar a day uh, and is now a dollar 90 a day to uh, measure uh, extreme poverty around the world uh, has a very distorting effect on the general understanding of the situation in relation to poverty alleviation. Um, The uh, benchmark is so extraordinarily low Uh, that it is, in fact, um, a a sort of minimum subsistence, miserable subsistence level, uh, which doesn't tell us very much. The problem is that uh, the United Nations has basically enshrined this measure in its sustainable development goals. And whenever we hear from any of the boosters of the current capitalist neoliberal system, Uh, like Bill Gates or Steven Pinker or others, they are relying on the World Bank's uh, international poverty line uh, figures. And those figures enable them to say that poverty has been uh, magically reduced uh, from close to 2 billion people in 1990 down to some 700 million now. So it's been a huge success story. If you, however, question World Bank officials, they'll say, well, of course, things are much more complicated. And if you say, well, what about the multidimensional poverty index that Sabina and her colleagues have put forward, that UNDP is promoting? Absolutely, very good, very informative. And we at the World Bank have our own indexes, which uh, are comparable. And we agree these show a much more... uh, complex uh, situation. So the problem is that the bank is playing both sides of the street and the rest of us haven't really worked out a way to say, look, the reliance by the World Bank, uh, sorry, by the UN, the constant repetition by the UN Secretary General that poverty is getting much better because we're down to 700 million is just simply misleading at best uh, and really distorting at worst. And so the sort of uh, much deeper analysis that Sabina and her colleagues have done gives us a much more complex but also a much uh, less rosy picture. Well, before we go to Sabina and Sharon and talk about the the different kinds of multidimensional definitions or analysis that you can bring to uh, the the understanding of where poverty is, um, let's just stay with this this kind of uh, argument about what constitutes, uh, you know, reasonable or enough income so that you're not living in poverty. Um, it's at a dollar ninety a day, you say. Um, why is it that the UN and various others, as you describe them, boosters, stay with that number? Is it just because it allows them to argue this great success story? Um, and and if I can ally and sort of append another question to that, is it? If the success isn't as great as they say it is, um, is it nonetheless an improving picture or or is it not? Well, first of all, the reasons, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that this is a fraud being perpetrated on uh, on humankind. Um, it, this was uh, an index originally developed, uh, in fact, by a, a very well-known Australian economist uh, working at the World Bank named Martin Revalian. Uh, and the motivation was to be able to more effectively compare one country against another, which is a very complex um, challenge. Uh. 
and so the IPL had a clear rationale and played an important role in some respects. The problem is that it's been seized upon as the measure for public discussions um, and the bank itself would say that's not what it should be used for uh, but nonetheless it got it found its way into the millennium development goals that um, started in the year 2000 and was then transferred over to the sustainable development goals um, is it a problem or are we not actually making pretty good progress well, if you look at the um, huge economic growth that we've experienced um, in recent decades, uh, which has enriched uh, the already wealthy um, very, very much, what we see is that we're still left with um, well over a billion people living in poverty. Um, and that clearly is deeply problematic. So the celebration, which then enables us to say, uh, as the Secretary General of the UN does, for example, he will say COVID-19 is doing terrible things to poverty. Uh, gender is doing very badly uh, in all of this. You know, women's poverty rates are uh, terrible, etc. We therefore need to double down on the sustainable development goals. But that immediately puts it back to the old framework rather than saying, you know what, the sustainable development goals are actually failing, even by their own measures when it comes to eliminating poverty, and they are utterly inadequate when it comes to climate change, when it comes obviously to COVID-19 uh, and a range of other challenges. So somehow we need to move beyond this international poverty line-based debate to acknowledge that things are, as I said, in a parlous state, uh, rather than that we have made great progress. And would you say that progress, uh, absent the, the uh, COVID crisis, which you mentioned, but let's just, for, for the sake of sort of, I guess, completing my understanding anyway, um, consider the situation prior to 2020 and the COVID crisis coming out of nowhere almost, um, was the situation generally improving, even on, on that 190 index? The situation was certainly uh, getting slowly better. But the problem is that we've got to get back to the basics. We talk about eradicating extreme poverty, not making it a little bit better. And we live in a world of immense riches, where even by the World Bank standards, 700 million people still live in dire poverty, really dire poverty. And so, and the uh, expected rates of uh, achieving a lot of our goals are just awful. Uh, we're looking at decades ahead. And so the world has come to accept a level of poverty which is really unconscionable. Uh, while patting itself on the back and saying, we're really doing a, a good job, things are moving forward, uh, the bureaucracies are functioning very effectively, they're able to justify themselves with a new glossy report every year, governments say things are really going in the right direction, uh, when in fact what this means is we're locking in um, a very large number of people who will be in this state of dire poverty uh, forever. It's mm. a very disturbing picture. Sabina, income is still the dominant means of determining how many people are living in poverty, as, as Philip was just saying, but that is changing in large part due to your work on the multi-dimensional poverty index, the MPI. What's the value of conceptualising and me measuring poverty in this multi-dimensional way? I think that we are standing on the shoulders of many who have articulated the lived experience of poverty and the best um, advocates, of course, are the protagonists of poverty, the poor men and women communities. So, for example, if you looked at a participatory study in El Salvador um, about what are the appropriate dimensions of poverty, a government might recognize, yes, health, yes, education, yes, living standards, but the people might add other things like violence or esparcimiento, having a place for my children to play, for old people to drink coffee. And so um, when we want to approach 
articulate and measure, therefore guide policies to address the lived conditions of poverty, then we have to recognize that that lived experience um, is multidimensional. That is also conceptual. Amartya Sen, Nobel laureate in economics, says poor people's lives are battered and diminished in many and various ways and advocated and spearheaded moves towards multidimensional measurement. And Wolf and de Chalet, from a philosophical perspective, observe that one of the features of multidimensional poverty, which previous measures did not capture, is that it's not only having non-monetary deprivations, but it's their clustering. The roof leaks, you know, my child is out of school, my job is insecure, um, and the, the overlapping and simultaneous deprivations exacerbate the condition of poverty. So multidimensional poverty measures try to bring these into view. They can't capture everything. Um, they must complement monetary measures because both are important. But they bring into the view of policy the overlapping simultaneous um, deprivations, at least some of them, which are core to poverty. And do they present um, the kinds of comparison problems uh, country to country that were trying to be overcome by going to this single this unidimensional index of $1.90 a day um, is, is having multi-dimensions, uh, multi, multiple measures, uh, conceptually or comparatively more complex as a result of that? It's actually a little bit simpler in some senses. So we compute with UNDP a global poverty measure, um, which is the same across this year, 107 countries and 5.9 billion people. We also work with governments to create tailor-made measures that are not comparable because the definition of poverty in Mexico is very different than in Sierra Leone. But this comparable measure, if you think about it, it's, is a child malnourished in your household? Is a child out of school till aged or class eight? Has it, um, is anybody in the household with six years of education? What's your water? What's your sanitation? Now, the advantage of that is that there are no purchasing power parity. We don't have to know what 190 US dollar means in Mauritania um, because a malnourished child is a malnourished child in terms of their stunting or their underweight status anthropometrically. The other advantage is that um, uh, the rural urban price adjustments, the inflation um, and the need really to combine between 450 and 1100 indicators for consumption poverty measures is, is reduced. And so there are fewer indicators. So it is possible that some of the, um, the errors and the complexities are lower counterintuitively when it's a multidimensional measure than when it's a, a, a uni, unidimensional measure, but drawing on many, many variables about income or consumption. Um, of course, like any measure, it's not perfect. So the data come from different years and maybe they don't have the same nutrition information in each survey, we always have children, but we don't always have men, for example. So there are, there are problems that are, we are transparently um, showing nothing's perfect. But I think the issue of comparability is actually easier multidimensionally. Mm, it's interesting. Sharon, poverty measurement is often considered to be gender neutral. Your work to develop a gender-sensitive measure of poverty is aimed to challenge that assumption. Why is gender so important in both measuring and addressing poverty? Mark, I, I think there are, um, you know, we've already started to talk about some of the, the problems of existing measures, particularly um, income-based measures that assume that income is a proxy for everything else or a reasonable proxy for everything else. Um, and another problem with the way we measure particularly income poverty is that we usually measure at the household level and then we assume that resources are equally distributed within the household. But, of course, there is... Um, decades of research to suggest that that is not the case and that resources are, are very rarely distributed with perfect, perfect equity within households. And nothing in social or cultural or economic spheres is ever truly gender neutral. And the nature and experience of poverty is no exception. Um, so the work that we've been doing has been around developing um, a way of measuring multidimensional poverty that builds on the work of, of many scholars um, and policymakers over years. And the work that we've done began with participatory research with women and men experiencing poverty. 
And the survey that we developed has, has aimed to include questions that from that participatory research were particularly important to women. So we asked questions around whether or not women have had access to prenatal care during pregnancy. Um, we also ask around whether women have access to sanitary products. So they're questions that are specific to women. And of course, access to sanitary products during menstruation is almost never included in measures of poverty. But for women, this is really essential. And it often determines whether or not they're able to engage in education, in employment, and in a whole range of community activities. So we aim in our approach to ask questions that are specific to women, but also to ask questions that reveal the gendered nature of poverty. So what we've found in the work that we're doing is that poverty isn't necessarily feminized. And that's one of the things that we see in the literature, this idea of the feminization, feminization of poverty, often without clear definition of what that means. You know, it may mean that women are getting poorer or that women experience more poverty or that female-headed households are poorer. But it's often quite unclear what that concept means. What we're seeing in the work that we're doing and what other, other work is also revealing is that poverty is not necessarily feminised, but it is gendered. And that both women and men experience poverty and often very, very deep poverty. But that experience often reflects gendered roles and responsibilities. So, for example, in some work that we've done in Indonesia, we found both women and men experience deep food insecurity. But while men are prone to skip meals during the day, most likely because of their work arrangements, women are more likely to limit their own diets in terms of the, the range of foods that they eat. And they're more likely to be anxious about running out of food. And this is often related to their women's responsibilities for feeding their families. So we see a similar outcome, which is food insecurity, but different drivers for that food insecurity, depending on gender. We collect data across 15 different dimensions and our work and the work of others, including work of, of people like Stefan Klassen, has shown that time use is the most gendered of, of dimensions of deprivation. And we see that women are far more time deprived. And so this is where policy responses become really important. Social protection programs and social assistance that demand more of women's time. So for example, to respond to conditionality, will often add to their multidimensional poverty and deepen burdens and deprivations. So it's really important that we understand the gendered nature of poverty, not just in terms of measurement, but so that we can respond in ways that are appropriate and don't inadvertently add to the challenges facing poor women and poor men. So it sounds like we've got um, the original kind of unidimensional uh um, methodology, which uh, Philip has very, uh, you know, clearly explained the limitations of, and uh, very persuasively, uh, I might say. Uh, then we've got multi-dimensional poverty, which Sabina has talked about. What is the difference between uh, multi-dimensional poverty, as the way Sabina's talked about it, and the way, like methodologically speaking, what is the difference? Is it the number of different uh, in indices? within that uh, that you would look at in order to establish whether poverty is, is, is a problem? So I think one of the key differences, um, and Sabina can probably speak to this as well, um, would, be, would be useful, but the, the multidimensional poverty index, for very good reasons, uses existing data. And that's a very useful approach because those data are already there and are available and can be used in order to develop an index. So, so excuse me, Sharon, these are data that, that, uh, that are collected by nation states, by governments in, in each of those countries and are, and are available. It might be data on education levels, income levels, whatever it is. That's right. But, but given that we've got Sabina sitting here, I think I should throw to Sabina to talk about exactly the kinds of data that he used um, because she's the expert here. So the Global Multidimensional Poverty Measure um, Index, MPI, with UNDP uses 47 demographic and health surveys for 47 countries and multiple indicator cluster surveys for 47 countries, Pan America, um, and then PAPFAM data and national surveys for 13 countries this year. Um, covering 107 seven countries and identifying 1.3 billion people as poor. And those data are available for the household. For example, for um, education, we have the household roster. We have everyone, everyone's information, women and men. 
Um, but in the multiple indicator cluster surveys, we only have children's undernutrition. So a household measure is presuming that there is caring and sharing within the household. But when it comes to water or sanitation or electricity, it's presuming everybody you know, has access to those living standard resources. We do do intra-household and gendered analysis for the individual variables, for education, for nutrition, for um, children out of school. And there we do find very striking things. For example, uh, 45% of girls versus 22% of boys in Afghanistan. So very, very high gendered differentials. Um, and, and sometimes we don't. So sometimes in nutrition, we find that the earlier gendered nutrition patterns among children have equalized in some countries, but not all. Um, so that, that is a, a way of combining a household measure where we know a child or a woman, we know the other deprivations of her household, and then we know one thing like education or nutrition, but we are not able to have gendered measures that are different and have different reproductive or employment indicators for women and men. And that requires other data sets. And those other data sets, uh, those, some of those other data sets are the type of things, Sharon, that you can uh, access and, uh, and you do that by surveying yourself? Yes, so the difference in the approach that we take is that we don't use existing data. We've developed a set of survey tools that we use with all members of the household or all members of the household over the age of 16 years. Um, so the reason that we don't at the moment include children in the approach that we take is that the surveys and the dimensions that we assess are grounded in the participatory research that we did and for a range of, of reasons that were really around resource constraints. We didn't at the time do that participatory research with children. And so we don't want to use adults as proxies for children. So this measure is focusing on adults or, or people over the age of, of generally 16 years. Um, and we undertake the survey with every member of, of the household. And the questions that we ask are grounded in that participatory research. So we're able to identify uh, within household inequalities in uh, the way resources are distributed across those 15 dimensions and then to build up from the individual to understand the way in which different social groups are experiencing poverty across those dimensions. But I think what's really important is this isn't an either-or. These are different approaches that give us somewhat different types of data and are useful for different for different um, reasons and provide different types of information based basis for decision making. The approach that we take requires enumerators to go out into the field to collect data. Um, and so that has um, added, added costs, but it also brings certain benefits um, that are really important in terms of understanding the way multidimensional poverty plays out for individuals um, and across this very wide range of dimensions. Philip, during your time as UN Special Rapporteur, you undertook investigations in a number of countries. What can you say are the main obstacles to ending poverty? And, and did you see glimmers of hope anywhere? I guess the starting point um, is uh, both to acknowledge the extent of poverty and then to uh, have any sort of serious commitment to ending it. Um, I think that um, in some ways we've actually uh, moved backwards uh, in recent decades in terms of the deeply held belief that poverty should be eradicated. I think to the extent that the general principles of neoliberalism have tended to triumph in most of our societies, uh, the poor are big-time losers in that context uh, because the assumption is uh, that they should be looking after themselves, that there should be a very small role for government, uh, that there should be ever more privatisation of a whole range of basic functions, that there should be deregulation. And all of these things uh, are to the detriment of the poor. Uh, one might conceivably uh, justify some of those policies if they were then accompanied by 
some compensatory measure, whether, and I'm not advocating this, but whether it was a sort of universal basic income or whatever. But of course, that has not happened. And instead, the overall policy framework is moving determinedly to reinforce the primacy of the wealthy uh, and to ensure that the middle classes are reasonably well off, although they too are not doing especially well in most countries. So I think that's really the biggest challenge uh, in confronting poverty is the ideology, basically. Is this something that uh, we as a society, whether we are in El Salvador Sierra Leone or Australia uh, think is unacceptable or is it just the way it is uh, and in order to have a thriving economy, in order to have a highly competitive economy, we need to just look the other way uh, when we are told that 15, 20% of our population are actually living in poverty. Well, that, that's a really interesting question. Where, it raises an interesting question. Where are the uh, people around the world? There's 700 million, you say, are in, um, living in extreme poverty. Uh, where are they? Are they costed in, um, in Africa uh, mostly? Are they, um, are they in countries that are war-torn, subject to famine? Are, are they indeed also in rich countries like Australia? Well, that's one of the that that's a, a, another definitional issue, uh, and that is the extent to which you can uh, actually uh, adopt a more relative approach to poverty uh, measurement. And I think that is very important. Uh, the job that I did for the UN is called Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty. And so it was quite an amusing debate. There were a lot of developing countries who wanted to get rid of the word extreme. Um, and their rationale was that otherwise all poverty is going to be assumed to be in what we used to call the third world. And therefore, a country like Australia or the United Kingdom, by definition, has no extreme poverty uh, because no one is living uh, you know, on 50 cents a day. Uh, but the reality, of course, is that poverty is actually relative and you can be living in Australia on $15 a day uh, and still have an absolutely miserable existence uh, of which uh, the Australian government and the Australian people should be deeply ashamed. Um, and so one has to relativize it. And a lot of the work that I did as special rapporteur was to emphasize that there are major problems in the United Kingdom, in the United States, in Spain, uh, and other developed countries where I visited and did detailed reports. Uh, but of course, that does uh, raise these complex questions of measurement. Um, essentially, the easy way around that, and Sabina sort of hinted at this, is to rely on national measures Obviously, I'm not in a position to come in and say, you guys are doing this all wrong. Uh, and so what the Spanish government itself identifies with some input from the European Union as being poverty in Spain is a good enough measure for me. That didn't always work uh, so that in Malaysia, there's an ongoing debate where Malaysia hasn't really adapted its own domestic poverty measure since about 1970. And so they claim to have the lowest poverty rate in the world of 0.4%. Uh, and everything is great. We don't need to have special policies because no one's poor in our country. And of course, that is patent nonsense. Uh, but it then requires uh, an outside monitor uh, like myself to actually suggest that there needs to be a different measure in order to evaluate how many people in the society really are poor. What about the two mega countries of China and India? Not sure how accurate the, the numbers are there in terms of how the statistics are and how open the governments are about them. But is, are, they, are, they, are they where most people are? 
I did a uh, no. In fact, um, as Sabina's report points out, uh, it's uh, sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, which are the key areas these days. But just to go back, um, I did a, uh, a UN mission, UN visit to China, uh, and spent time there looking closely at their situation. And they do also reflect the problem that I described earlier. Um, to the credit of Xi Jinping, um, the Chinese have made poverty eradication a political priority. I remember being criticized when I came back to the United States and people said, hang on a minute, are you telling us that that communist regime is a model, etc.? Uh, and my response was, uh, if an American president would make poverty elimination a serious political priority, I'd be delighted. Uh, it doesn't have to be accompanied by the Chinese political system. But the problem in China, again, is that they have their own measure of extreme poverty, and that measure is pretty low and they tend to approach it rather mechanistically. So we have to get people above this absolute poverty level so that we can then proclaim that we've lifted 700 million, 800 million people out of poverty. But the reality is that an awful lot of those people are living very precariously poised just above what inevitably is a somewhat artificial line uh, so it's a complex situation again. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Sabina, what trends do we see over time in the incidence of multidimensional poverty? So this year we released a, a study for 75 countries and 5 billion people and changes in the global multidimensional poverty index over time. Um, and 65 of those 70 countries had statistically significant reductions. Um, four countries cut their MPI by half, including India, um, uh, which uh, famously lifted over 270 million people out of poverty in a decade from 2005, 2015-16. Um, but countries like China, uh, Indonesia, did fantastic also in reducing relative poverty relative to their much lower starting levels. Um, and so that, that was overall a strong and surprising note. Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that it was fast enough. So a couple of caveats. One is about children. So of the 1.3 billion people who are poor, about half are children. And it was the same in these 70 countries, 75 countries. But one third of the countries either had no change in child poverty or children who are poorer than adults reduced poverty more slowly. And so you, you saw a bit of age disparity. Um, 20 countries reduced poverty in every indicator, but in many it was perhaps an imbalanced um, whereas in some cases, the poorest groups had the, the fastest poverty reduction. In others, they did not. And then in 14 countries, the number of poor people went up. And so it's a very complex set of, of, of studies. Um, I think the one note that we had that was of interest is that if we looked at whether those countries, if their progress continued more or less at the same rates, would cut their 
uh, multidimensional poverty incidence by half between 2015 to 2030. 47 countries were on track to do so, but 18 countries were not. And these did include quite large countries like Pakistan or Nigeria. And so it's a positive story. Things are moving in the right direction, but there are a lot of nuances and the, pro the progress is not fast enough uh, in many countries. And is, when you say it's a positive story, are you talking pre-COVID? Um, because obviously COVID's come along and changed a whole number of things about the way the world operates and, uh, um, and had devastating effect on national economies and the global economy. I assume most of these figures you're talking about predate the, the incidence of this global pandemic. Yes, all of them predate the pandemic. And we've been working since March very heavily in the COVID emergency response. What we did with the global MPI was a simulation exercise um, to simulate the World Food Program projected increases in food insecurity, mapping them into undernutrition, and to simulate the children out of school. And when we did those simulations, depending on which um, assumptions we took, um, COVID set the developing world back 3.1 to 9.9 years. Um, nearly 500 million people more could be poor. That is a warning sign. That's not what has happened, but that's what could happen. And we very much see that as a call for action, a call for attention, a call to give poverty the priority that um, Philip talked about, because it's, it's a time where we could turn a corner, as, as some countries have done, or we could really ha have a terrible situation. Um, and so this is, this is really a, a critical moment um, to make an inflection point in terms of the priority, the activity on poverty by government, by private sector, um, by civil society. Thank you. Uh, Sharon, one of the things Sabina was saying there earlier on, uh, the, the point about there being 1.3 billion people uh, living in poverty and half of them or more, more than half of them being children, you've undertaken research with children on issues of multidimensional poverty. Uh, what do we learn from children's own experience of poverty? And allied to that, um, how much does poverty become hereditary? So I think the work that Sabina's been doing, um, sort of tracking the, the the trends in child poverty is so incredibly important and has just revealed so much in terms of the vulnerability of children, but the fact that we're not really shifting that vulnerability. The work that we've been doing has been qualitative participatory research with children who are in context of poverty. And it reflects what similar research has shown um, and that's just how deeply children experience poverty, but also how much they know about their own poverty, about their parents' poverty, about their families and their community situation. And what's often striking in this kind of participatory work is that even quite young children are very accurately able to price a range of goods. So that might be very basic food items through to kerosene or fuel. Um, so in Australia, some research that we were doing, children knew the price of petrol per litre in poor families, um, which is something the children, and these were primary school age children, you know, in well-off families, that's something that never crosses children's minds. But when children are growing up in context of poverty, they're acutely aware of the cost of, of essential goods. And while parents will often try very, very hard to protect their children from the realities of poverty to the best of their, their ability and to buffer the experience of their children, we also find that children are often going to extreme lengths to try to protect their parents. And that will often be going without themselves, not asking for things that they need at school or in other contexts because they know their parents just can't afford it. In some research that we've done with children of primary school age in very different contexts, including Australia and in Indonesia, we've found that, that there are sort of three broad categories of poverty that children talk about. And one is material deprivation, which really matters greatly to children's lives and erodes their standards of living. But we also found other domains to be important to children around opportunity poverty and what we call relational poverty. So what we call opportunity poverty is when children's opportunities to engage adequately in school, in community activities, in games and play are denied to them. And, and you know, this really undermines children's development and their opportunities for the future and their opportunities for the present. 
what we found really interesting is what we refer to relational poverty. And this is when poverty undermines children's relationships, both with the people that are close to them and with those who are in their communities. So sometimes relational poverty is a result of structural factors that um, come from and result in violence and exclusion and stigma. And often children's relational poverty results in the, or results from the trade-offs that their parents have to make between putting food on the table, between putting a roof, however leaky, over their family's head, and being present both physically and emotionally in their children's lives. So what children have told us about is their parents being completely exhausted from their work, working nights, working weekends, working long hours, and never having the time or the energy to be there for them. But this is something the children don't share with their parents that they often try to protect their parents from. And children also talk about the stress on their parents as a result of unemployment or precarity and how that plays out in terms of their relationships with their parents. And children talk also about how much they value relationships and time with their parents. So I think all of this gives us an insight into the complexities of poverty. And some of these things just can't be measured but we know that they undermine children's lives and undermine their parents' lives. So children's insights remind us that while income is valuable in people's lives and in their lives, so are things like time. And we see that time and money are often in tension with one another. And what children often say is that in poor families, small gains in income often necessitate really large amounts of time and those trade-offs really hurt children. Now, we may go to some questions from our audience if we have any, but before we do that or while we um, get Angus to uh, bring us one or two of those questions, um, Philip, just staying with this uh, notion of the impact on, on children, the devastating impact on children and its, you know, its uh, intergenerational implications, um, you took a delegation of primary school children to Glasgow to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Why was it important and what did the children have to say to global leaders in that exercise? The goal was really to, uh, I mean, first of all, uh, I spent time at the school with them in Glasgow. Uh, it was an important opportunity for them to uh, humiliate me by asking me to do drawings that I couldn't do and uh, play other games that I was uh, hopeless at. Um, but uh, it was also a chance to uh, to really get a sense of how they viewed not only their own situation but that of other kids. They would sort of talk about, well, poor old Mark. You know, he if you look at his shoes, you'll see that they've got holes in them. And uh, poor old Sharon, she doesn't actually really get to eat lunch until something is provided by the school. Um, and that's quite a good way of getting a, a sense of what's going on in what looks to be otherwise a reasonably well-off community. Uh, but the real, the broader goal was just to highlight the fact that in a country like the United Kingdom, by uh, government's own estimates, uh, close to 35% of children are living in poverty. Uh, and that has all of the consequences in terms of intergenerational inequity uh, and the uh, transmission of all of these disadvantages from one uh, group to another uh, that you've described earlier. Uh, and I think it was pretty important that uh, even diplomats in the UN context realise that we're not just talking about uh, figures. Uh, indexes can go on forever, but to actually see a group of children who represent uh, the deprivation uh, of almost of, of over a third of kids in the United Kingdom, uh, I think was a very useful way of illustrating the extent of the challenge. Uh, Mark, the only other thing I, I would like to add, just uh, I don't want to uh, get the discussion off track, but we've talked about COVID-19. Uh, the other issue that needs to be brought in is climate change. Uh, most of us uh, or many of us working in the field are almost sick of climate change now because there's been so much discussion and so on. But the reality is that a lot of these um, figures, and I mentioned before the Sustainable Development Goals, for example, barely take account of climate change. And yet the consequences of that 
particularly for children, uh, but not only for poverty more generally, are going to be uh, much more dramatic even than COVID-19. And so to the extent that we're seeing lots of positive uh, developments right now, uh, the combination of COVID and climate change um, really put uh, on the table the dire need for uh, fundamentally different policy approaches uh, to poverty. So what might have been good five years ago uh, will not be uh, anywhere near as effective in the years ahead. Uh, and we do risk <clears throat> very significant diminution uh, of the success that we've uh, been able to achieve. Yes, a very good point. Uh, now, Angus, uh, do you have any questions that uh, we might have from an audience or someone in the audience? Yeah, we have a couple, and uh, they both go to, I guess, how we collect data and understand poverty. The first one is from Anahita Hosseini, um, and the question is, given that the calculation of Alkir Foster MPI requires household data and the data for some of the indicators aren't available in household surveys, uh, what should be done instead? Thank you very much, Anahita. First of all, for our methodology, um, we can do it for individuals. We can do it for well-being, for gross national happiness, as in the case of Bhutan, or for household data. And so the methodology and the techniques are open. Um, and the Women's Empowerment in Index um, also has individualized data that is gendered. So the techniques are there. That's not the problem. But she rightly pointed out that the problem are data. And it seems that there are different strategies one is to take household data and to try to get better gendered information. For example, to get nutritional data or health data for women and men, or to get employment data in the demographic and health surveys and in the multiple indicator cluster surveys. They ask about uh, work, but they don't ask if the person's in the labor force. And yet in a time of COVID, we desperately need to know something about the livelihoods of, of the respondents. And so one track is to work with the survey providers. And I must say, I have utmost gratitude and respect for the data that we get free of charge across so many developing countries. It's a pure gift. And yet working um, to hone that uh, with some improvements would be one strategy. And then the other is to try to develop um, questionnaires that have individual and gender data. And we tried actually. We tried to put forward a questionnaire that would be uh, appropriate to, to create an MPI that could be gender desegregated, but that is a much bigger effort. It requires huge amounts of financial resources and, and things that we, we certainly don't have. I think the other avenue is that where governments or other actors are interested, then they're able to put out country-specific studies and exercises, and they are doing so. Um, and so there are some national MPIs that are individual and can be broken down then by gender. And, and there are other some really some innovative questions bringing in social capital or bringing in um, violence, bringing in environment, bringing in um, some of the deprivations that are not appropriate in some contexts, but which are central to the experience of lived poverty in others. Mark, if I could maybe just add to that, this is you know the, the challenge that that Sabina outlines was one of the things that led to the work that we've been doing, which has been to develop um, a new survey that is conducted with individuals and asks a range of questions that, that are sensitive to gender. Um, and it is a very resource-intensive process. You know, we've been working on this for a decade and we feel as though we're still at the beginning of it, but we also feel as though we're uh, we've started to crack some of those really difficult issues about the kinds of questions you ask and are now starting to see the benefits of that in terms of the, the data that are produced and the ways in which we can see the different patterns of poverty for women and for men, but women and men of different ages and, and from different backgrounds. And so we start to see the importance of intersectionality. But none of this is, is easy um, and all of this sort of work re requires resources. I guess one of the things that we're always conscious of is the trade-off between collecting data and then actually acting to, to overcome poverty. So we always need to really keep an eye on the, the quality of the data, the kinds of surveys we use and ensuring that we're doing the best job possible and sex disaggregating wherever possible. 
Um, but we also need to make sure that resources are being directed towards action as well as, as the data. So, you know, I think that's always an important issue to keep in mind. Thank you, Sharon. That was a, a very uh, important contribution there to make. I, I might just stay with you just for a, a last question, if I can, because I just want to um, pick up on, on uh, what, what Philip was saying uh, before. Um, that's my old political uh, uh, memory kicking in there. And about um, children in poverty and getting politicians and diplomats to understand the problem. What does your research teach you about or, or, or indicate to you about this COVID challenge at the moment? Um, and I guess if I could get you to make a general comment on how politically powerless are people living in poverty, because obviously by definition they're economically Powerless. That is uh, one of the, you know, central uh, characteristics of poverty is not having economic power. Um, but it strikes me there's a uh, there's a lack of political power there too, which uh, very much compounds the problem and cements it as permanent or semi-permanent at least. So I think you know what we're seeing in many places, and certainly what we've been seeing in the work that we've been doing in Indonesia. Is, is firstly the way in which people who are living in poverty can't really protect themselves against COVID-19. So if you don't have um, hand-washing facilities or soap in your house, then you can't take those really basic um, measures around hygiene. If you're living in a very crowded environment, you need to go to work or you need to go to use public toilet, then you can't physically distance. And so just those, those basic measures of protecting oneself against COVID-19 are things that people who are living in contexts of poverty can't do. But I think what we're also seeing through COVID-19 is um, the really challenging kind of distributional issues and the way in which both inequality and poverty are being deepened. But I wanted to pick up on the point that, um, you know, that the Philip was making and, and, and also Sabina's point about child poverty. Um, there's a, a project that's in progress at the moment that's being led by Susana uh, Cortez-Morales in Colombia. Um, and this is, is work that's taking place across about a dozen countries. Um, so Colombia, Chile, Indonesia, Australia, the United States, so a very wide range of countries, looking at the way in which children have been positioned in COVID-19 responses. And what we're seeing in all of those countries is the way in which children who are in poor families are experiencing, um, I guess, the impacts of inequality. So during lockdown, the difficulty of children in poverty accessing education, you know, that digital divide that's there in so many countries just becoming deeper. So we're seeing those kinds of trends across all of those countries. But what we're seeing in many of those countries as well is the way in which children have been kind of marginalised from the debates and the, the lack of avenue for children to express the things that matter to them and to talk about the way in which poverty um, and COVID-19 is impacting on their lives. And in some ways, I guess this mirrors the kind of generational inequality that we see in climate change debates where it's children who are most, well, who are particularly concerned about climate change and children who are going to be impacted in their lives and yet are so often marginalised from those debates, despite the efforts of children and young people to take control of some of those debates. So I think those kinds of generational issues are really being revealed in the context of COVID-19. Well, look, thank you all. We're, we're, we're right out of time now and I, I feel like in a way we've only just scratched the surface here. It's, it's, these are such profound and, and deep issues and, uh, and they are of great importance to, to humanity and uh, that has come across from uh, the, the three of you, uh, you know, providing your perspectives on this uh, tonight. It's tonight, my time in Australia at least, and for Sharon, quite late uh, here on a Thursday night. Um, and... Um, Thank you for all of you listening around the world to this. I hope that you've uh, gained something from it. This will go out also as a Democracy Sausage podcast. For some of you who are wondering what that is, uh, Democracy Sausage is a podcast that comes out from the ANU twice weekly, the Australian National University, uh, which I host this podcast, uh, and um, we look at matters of politics and economics and, and, and all ranges of things associated with public affairs. Uh, so if you're interested in that, uh, you can find that uh, wherever you get your podcasts and 
we'd be very uh, grateful for you to do so. Um, uh, so thank you to Philip Alston, uh, Sabina Alkir, Sharon Bessel, and also to Angus Blackman, who uh, had a, a better question there and provided technical support. Uh, and um, that uh, concludes this broadcast. Thanks very much for being with us on this special uh, seminar tonight. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you.